Pacific garbage patch is perhaps one of the most disgusting and tragic examples of the plastic pollution crisis. If you've never heard of it, it's the largest accumulation of ocean plastic in the world, and it's between Hawaii and California. It's three times the size of France, and at the time of sampling, there were more than 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic in the patch, weighing a total of 80,000 tonnes. Truly horrifying stuff. But have you heard of the Wet Wipe Island? Oh, my sister sent me an article about it this week. It's a pile of wet wipes the size of two tennis courts, which is formed in England's second longest river, the Thames. It's so big that it's causing the river to change course as it flows through London. Now, I've got a toddler, so I've definitely used my share of wet wipes over the last 16 months. But I try to buy biodegradable ones, and I definitely do not flush them down the toilet, people. Which is what is causing this massive and super gross problem in the UK. I also recycle, use reusable shopping bags. I, I know there's a lot more I could be doing, but, you know, I thought I was doing pretty good. Until... I came across this story from last year. A journey down the driveway, three years in the making. Three years and four months to be exact. Gary Moran hasn't needed to put his rubbish out since 2018 and says it's only taken a little extra effort. Yep, you heard that correctly. Gary didn't put out his council bin for three years. Hey, I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and the theme of today's Branch Out podcast is all about waste and how to reduce it. I'm actually going to play you an episode from another awesome podcast about plants. It's called Plants Grow Here, and it's hosted by Daniel Fuller. Daniel interviewed Gary about this monumental and inspiring achievement of not putting out his bin for three years. Keep listening to learn how he did it and the surprisingly simple things we can all do to reduce our household waste and prevent horrible things like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and Wet Wipe Island from happening. You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals, and enthusiasts. Gary Moran is a consulting arborist that you're probably familiar with if you've been listening to the show. He runs the Trees Etc. Twitter account, and recently he's gone viral for his minimal waste lifestyle. Deep down, most of us know that we produce too much waste, so I thought it'd be great to get him back on the show to teach us about ways that we can practically reduce our waste both in the garden and in other parts of our lives. So, how have you been, man? Yeah, busy. I had a I had a week of annual leave of uh, some pretty good adventure cycling and the and the Flinders Ranges just got back and got slapped in the face with reality where, you know, city commuting Flinders was good though. It was like, you know, 20 degrees out every day, not a cloud in the sky. Yeah, just yeah, cycling it was good on uh, just some tracks and trails and then through creek beds and through some um, native pine forests. It was pretty epic, actually. Sounds like a lot of fun, dude. It was. 
and this um this whole recycling zero waste thing got a lot more traction than I ever thought it would. I chucked a post on Facebook, and all of a sudden, all sorts of news people were calling me. Yeah. So, what channels have actually contacted you about it? Uh, the first people to contact me was Yahoo News. Hmm. Yep. And then it was was it Studio Ten or Studio Yeah Studio Ten or Nine in Sydney? Which what's that national channel? Uh, studio. It's Studio Ten, I think. Yeah, Studio it's Ten is one of them. Yeah. Yeah, and then was channel. Then it was Seven News Adelaide, and then local ABC Radio. So it was a few different things I did. So can you tell us what's all the fuss about? I don't think anyone had ever heard of someone not putting their bin out for that long, but they're a bit ill-informed. There's people that generate a lot less waste than me. So how long has it been since you took your bin out, Gary? Well, so now it's been a couple of weeks, but it was three years and four months. That is incredible. Yeah. So I guess that's why a lot of people are contacting you and want to share your story because I guess they probably never heard of anyone lasting that long without taking their bin out. Yeah, I had moved into this house like three years and four months ago, almost. Yeah, and hadn't put my bin out in the time that I'd lived here until just recently and when the news story broke, because you can get it. Mm. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about the idea of a zero waste lifestyle. And some people might be thinking, how is that possible? There's always going to be some sort of waste. True. Can you explain how that those statements can both be true, that you can live a zero waste lifestyle while still producing waste? Good question. Is that you achieve a, or you work towards a zero waste lifestyle through smart purchasing and recycling all the materials that you can, refusing things, buying secondhand things. It's a, it's a long laundry list actually to, to get there. And it's a it's a process that evolves over time. And it is dynamic too, as different things come into to play and recycling regimes change. And even if you move council to council, state to state has different programs. So you're going to have a little bit of waste, but I guess what you're saying is that if you make smart choices, your so-called waste can actually be reused by you in your own home. Is that what you're kind of saying? No. When I define waste, it's something that goes to landfill as opposed, so that's your red bin compared to your yellow bin if we want to use bin colors. I guess, so let's say with the, the top of the carrot, which is usually a waste product, what would you do with a waste product such as that? Oh, the top of a carrot. Yeah, I, I dig all of my food scraps back into my garden. So straight in, you don't even compost it? No, I don't even compost it. I dig it straight in. Why do you do that? Because I, I want to dig anyway when I replant my herbs and things. And so that aerates the soil a little bit and allows the organic material to slowly rot in. And I don't know, I haven't bothered to buy a compost bin. I don't generate all that much stuff anyway, just living alone. So I'm not sure if I would get the volume there to be an effective composter. Right. Well, I guess that's how nature does it. Yeah. There's not a compost pile in nature other than animals, I guess. No, that's right. Things lay on the ground, some leaf litter might fall on the top, and it does its own thing just by being in contact with the soil. Mm. Do you think that there are additional benefits to the soil biology by doing it that way, as opposed to composting separately? Boy, that would be a good question for someone who's got a better understanding of soil and, and I don't know, organic material and soil than I do. Do you have any thoughts on that, being a gardener yourself? Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I imagine that all of the macro and micronutrients would be in the same numbers because I, can't, I don't know how much of that would be lost through composting as opposed to 
just putting it straight in the soil. But yeah, the biology factor, I mean, I imagine that it would increase soil biology because there are additional sort of critters needed for different stages of that breakdown process. Yeah, interesting. One of the, it could be a positive or a negative side effect, depending how you look at it using that methodology, is that things pop up out of there. Like, well, I just saw I had some onions come up and there's a couple of potatoes. And so I have a, an, an inadvertent garden too, if you will. Well, that's actually my favorite type of gardening because, yeah, I'm a bit of a hippie, as I've said on this show before, and I'm the sort of person who would treat the dandelions in your lawn as a a salad crop as long as I didn't have a dog or a cat that weed in the backyard. Or a wine crop if you're a person who likes wine. Right. You can just, oh, you can make dandelion wine, can't you? Dandelion wine, you certainly can. Have you ever made it? I haven't, but uh, way back in my New York days, I knew a few people who did with dandelions in the country. So can you walk us through what have been some of the things that are key to your success in living a zero-waste lifestyle? Some of the most basic tips would be is to make a small recycling center in your house. When I say small, that's maybe just half of the area underneath your sink. and Learn to separate things that would normally go into your landfill bin, like into their separate compartments. Say, for example, aluminium foil goes in one small container, soft plastics, plastic wraps, plastic bags, etc. go into another one, one for batteries, one for small um, metal pieces, and say one for your general recycling. And then what I like to tell people is when you have an item in your hand, like let's say it's a small piece of aluminium foil, you have to put it somewhere. And so you've done your work at that stage. So now you just put it into the aluminium recycling point instead of into the general landfill bin. So do you need to have a council bin outside of your house that is specific for, you know, sort of aluminium or glass and things like that? Or can you actually take it upon yourself to just do a little bit of extra work by driving to different places? to deposit that waste? Sure. My local council area and all that in South Australia, to my knowledge, some interstate listeners might want to check with their, uh, with their local recycling center or through some really helpful groups like Reduce, Reuse, Recycle on Facebook, and they could advise on some of the nuances in their particular council. However, here with aluminium foil, for example, if you Take your small pieces of aluminium foil and you join them together until they're in a fist-sized ball or larger. The workers that stand on the conveyor's belt at the recycling center are trained to take those pieces off. Do you follow that, Dan? I do. So I guess a larger chunk of aluminium is going to be more bang for your buck in terms of effort when you're taking things off that conveyor belt. Maybe there's a couple of scraps, you might just let them go. Whereas if there's a giant ball of aluminium, they're going to be taking that off. Not only is it more bang for your buck, but the employee probably can't move his hands fast enough to get tiny little flakes of aluminium foil off of that belt. They'll they'll pass by or he won't see them because, or she, because they might be obscured by other things that are passing by on the conveyor also. That's a good point. Because sometimes, you know, I might rip the lid off of a yogurt tub. Yep. And I sort of put that aluminium in the recycling bin just thinking that that's going to get recycled, but that may not be the reality. I may actually be just contributing to landfill just as much as if I had have just put it in the other bin. 
Yeah, I, I would be fairly confident that a small yogurt tub, the aluminium top would not get captured at the recycling point. Well, there you go. We should be putting them into lumps and separating them. Correct. Just just have a collection and keep it going under the sink, as you said. Yeah, it gets to the size of your fist or two of your fists. Yep, and then you pop, then you just pop it in your normal yellow bin, your recycling bin. So what about plant matter and vegetable matter that is maybe, you know, not compatible with the garden? Like I know that sometimes people don't like putting in onions. Is that something that you ever worry about? No, nah, not one flake of organic material leaves my property, Dan. Wow. It all gets dug back into the garden. Any prunings that I do, I mulch with a lawnmower. I've always gone by the theory is why why do I want to generate or purchase organic material and then give it back to my local council and then to purchase that back from them as compost or mulch, but just process it all at home. And you can see the soil like over time slowly improve from compacted gray degraded soil to soil that's full of life with worms and grubs and other bugs and insects. Good ones. So it's uh, it's magic to see the results over time. That is magic. It's just like Dr. Samantha Grover said in episode two, Soil Science, life builds life. And that is just something that is absolutely incredible to think about. And we are so incredibly lucky that that's the way that life works, I think. To go out on a little bit of a tangent here, like I just spoke of like returning and adding all of the organic material that you can through your food scraps or whatever, prunings, whatever it may be to your property. Most people take them away. Right. And it goes off in that green bin off to their local council. And so then the organic material within their soil and property slowly degrades over time. That's very true because those plants are photosynthesizing and capturing carbon, which your garden would love, as well as macro and micronutrients being uptaken through the roots and then stored in that body of the plant. So when you're taking away the plant, you're literally taking away the minerals from your soil. A farmer on Twitter, I don't remember who it was, but I heard them saying that if you're not adding organic matter back into your soil, if you're taking it away, you're essentially a miner, not a farmer. Yeah, that's that's well said. Simple but clear. Totally. I guess that sort of addresses some of the smaller branches. You know, you can chop them up with the mower and then you put them down into the soil if you're digging it. But what about larger chunks? Like what if you had to cut off a limb? What would you do with that limb? I do have a fireplace at my house. I could use it as a little bit of firewood. But if someone doesn't, if they live in a cold climate, which a lot of Australia people do burn some wood from time to time, you could set it as some pieces of firewood on your curb and leave it for someone to collect. That's awesome. Or or offer it on a free site like the one that I suggested earlier, the Reduce, Reuse, Recycle site, and someone will grab it from you. That's pretty cool, man. So I want to build some some raised garden beds, and that's something that I've seen Mark Valencia from uh, Self Sufficient Me doing, is that he'll just drop a log in the bottom and then fill it up with soil and organic matter and stuff like that so that, yeah, it, you don't have to use as much soil in that uh, planter box. So that's an interesting way to use logs as well if you don't want to use them for firewood. Yeah, sure. Or as a as a garden border for a small herb garden, there's you know a range of things. It's it's a little bit about changing your mindset to realize that something is a resource instead of a waste product if you think outside the square a bit. Mm. That's very true. What are some of the other nuggets that you've been sharing with Channel Nine and Channel Ten and all of those other media outlets? One of the big 
game changers for me, Dan, several years ago was my local council tried a soft plastic recycling program. And I did it, but it was quite inconvenient. You had to go to the a special office and get these yellow bags to put your soft plastic in. And it was only open during business hours. And I had a hard time getting there. So you understand why that would be problematic for most people. But then uh, I think it's within the last couple of years is that the major supermarket chains, Coles and Woolworths, both developed a, a soft plastic recycling program by using the Reddit scheme. And so when you walk into those respective stores, usually right near the cash register area somewhere, there's a very large looking bin type thing that you put your soft plastics in. And several years ago, I worked out that soft plastics were probably 75% of my landfill bin at that stage for me being an avid recycler even then. So it's made a big deal, a, a huge difference for me. Wow. 70%. I think that's probably about true of uh, me too. I think that most of my waste is either animal products and then plastics is the rest. Do you know where the soft plastic, the the Reddit, uh, so, or sorry, the Red Cycle recycling point is at your local supermarket? I do know the one. I've always called it a plastic bag recycler. I actually didn't even know that they took other soft plastics. Is that also including stuff like the tub of the yogurt, not the not the foil topping, but the no, 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 no. The the tub of the yogurt is a is a hard plastic, and that would go in your general recycling in your yellow right. bin. Something that's rigid enough to hold water, right, goes in your normal yellow recycling bin. Plastic films, plastic wraps, um, you know, those little clear sheets that maybe you use in your office as a protector for a document, or things like that can go into the, the red cycle point at your supermarket. Right. So soft plastics are stuff that you can sort of scrunch up in your hand or they don't hold their shape when you pour water in, as you said. Yeah, th that's the one. Awesome. Well, that's a good tip. And that's a big one that I would really like to push out there to the, to the listeners is that if you can get that capture your soft plastics and simply return them to the supermarket each time when you go shopping, you'll reduce the frequency of taking your bin out by probably at least half. So how much do you think gets recycled at the plant when we're talking about hard plastics? Like I'm thinking about that tub of yogurt. I'm imagining that that may not get picked up as well if it's just a small one and it's the conveyor belt's moving fast and you know maybe the guy or girl working on the on the conveyor belt just doesn't see it in time or just doesn't get it because it's not a priority. Okay, if we go back to your yogurt tub again, there's a whole range of other processes and I don't understand them all fully and they do vary from recycling center to recycling center, but there's some centrifuges with holes in them and tumblers and blowers and magnets and a whole range of equipment that comes into play before things get on the conveyor belt to, the, to be handpicked. And so your, your, the plastic and paper and glass and things tend to get separated out with those mechanical processes first. And there's even some robots picking things out now, too, that they're trialing. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing about fungus or something that was being worked on by a very young person, if I remember correctly. And, or maybe it was a bacteria, but the, yeah, basically ate plastic. I wonder if we can bring that in or if maybe that's asking for trouble or. What do you think about that as an, a kind of an integrated pest management strategy kind of a thing? I have heard that also. Hopefully it doesn't become the next uh, rabbit, carp, or fox of Australia. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you can imagine the devastation if it got out of hand and started eating everything that was plastic in our society because we are quite a plastic society. Certainly. One comment that I would provide there is I've heard this analogy once and it's so clever is, yes, it's good that we recycle plastics and we're trying to do some of these things and develop bacteria that eats plastic, but it's a little bit like the bathtub is overflowing and we're not turning the tap off. We're trying to fix the problem by mopping the floor, right? Where we need to start using, producing, right? Less plastic is to really get ahead of this game and to be more eco smart. Some of those ecoplastics are pretty cool. I've seen dog bags can be composted, which is pretty awesome. Like that's a great reduce of plastic. Yes, it is. I do think it can be a little bit expensive. And I've also heard one farmer on Twitter speaking about that it didn't seal his meat enough to stop them from going moldy. So a certain percentage of them he lost during that time of using that product. So I don't know. I always think that the solution to so many of our problems is is just to innovate in areas that maybe people just, why are they so reluctant to innovate in things like that, like plastic that is made out of biological organisms. Well, it's um, it's pretty cool, some of that technology that's coming on online, and you'd be quite a wealthy person if you could come up with something successful now, wouldn't you? Yeah, especially if it was affordable and competitive. And I think even if it was a premium product, I think that people are willing to pay extra for stuff like that these days. Like imagine if at Coles and Woolies, instead of paying 15 cents for a plastic bag, you could pay 35 or even a dollar for a uh, an organic bag, knowing that it was going to degrade, but you just said, look, I'm I'm the one who didn't bring the bag here. It's a, just a dollar. And then you yeah. could just put that in your compost bin. But but then just to get one step ahead of you there, Dan, that's one of the things that I like to tell my friends is why are you using a single-use item in the first place? Yeah, no, you're right. And sometimes I'm guilty of it. Like I have to put my hand on my up and say, hey, look, sometimes I do bring not enough bags to the shops. and But I would pay the dollar or whatever the cost, not whatever the cost, but I would pay a premium to yeah, have a have an organic bag that could break down if I had to have a single-use product. Sure, and I'd be lying too if I said I didn't get caught out at the supermarket from time to time without bags, although I am pretty good about it. But you'd rather have the plastic bag but be able to reuse it. Is that right? No, not necessarily. I would rather see the plastic not get produced in the first place and to use an, an organic solution like you're suggesting, but even better is to use a non-single-use product, like a bag that's meant to be used for years. Mm. Because there's other environmental costs that come with that organic plastic bag too. It needs to be produced, transported, right, et cetera, et cetera, where I just use my bags hundreds, thousands of times. Mm. Gary, do you think that we're a little bit spoiled living in most parts of Australia where the streets aren't covered in rubbish and therefore we think that that's actually not a problem, that we can just put things in the bin and they just go away and that the whole world is just looking like our streets, which are regularly cleaned and maintained? Uh, I think we're totally spoiled and I like to refer to the bin as the magic bin. You put things in there and they just all like disappear, but <laughs> that's not reality now though, is it? There's a cost and, you know, a big environmental cost. And some people suggest that, you know, in the next in decades, centuries, that we'll be buried in our own waste if we don't change our ways. Mm-hmm. I've been shocked 
when I've traveled overseas, especially for the first time at the amount of litter and the amount of rubbish that are just in some waterways and, you know, capital cities that just have very foul water filled with all all sorts of different oils, all different kinds of, um, yeah, you know, waste products. And these are not healthy ecosystems and I can't imagine that their effect on the overall ecosystem is going to be a very good positive one. I think that what you're saying is actually very inspiring for me because I know I can do a lot better with my recycling efforts and my reusing efforts. So I think that there is a lot more to be learned and I think that we can gain a lot as a planet from doing what you're talking about, Gary. Well, thank you, first of all. And I would say that some people would say my efforts are quite extreme. So obviously, since if it's got media attention, there's some truth in that. But that's not what we need is a few people doing recycling perfectly. We need more, lots more people doing a pretty good job. That's what would make the biggest impact in recycling efforts nationwide, worldwide. Are there any structural changes that you could see being beneficial? In what way, Dan? Can you be more specific? So, yes, we need to do better as individuals. But are there external factors that could be changed that would make good sense to sort of pursue? So when you say external factors, do you mean like pro, like initiatives from the government or retailers, uh, things of that nature? Exactly, like more bins. Should we have more bins? Should we have a, um, should we have a glass bin and a, a green waste bin? Because I know that not all suburbs in Melbourne even have a green waste bin. Some suburbs in especially the Bayside, I think it is, that they just don't have bins on their property and they just have to put it into the normal bin or pay someone to take it away. Yeah, that's quite a shame, isn't it? And my understanding is Japan has several bins. I want to throw the number nine out there, but I don't know exactly. And that does exactly how you describe where you really separate things into more and more categories to reduce contaminants in the final recycling products. Mm, that's excellent. I think one of the things that shocked me about Japan though, was that they burnt a lot of plastic, which I was sort of like, oh, can you do that? Uh, I've heard that too about some Scandinavian countries where they were using an incinerator-type generator to create power from. Hmm. Are there any knock-on effects from that, do you think? Uh, there has to be some bad emissions. I, I realize that, they're, uh, that they have some catalytic converter on the chimney, so to speak, that's reducing particulates into the air, et cetera. Okay. But I don't know the, the, the real impacts of doing such. Uh, I also thought there was a way to convert, uh, that there's some scientists that are able to convert plastics back into a petroleum product to be used again as a fuel. That's pretty cool too. Mm. I think that these are all great ways to be reusing plastic. I think if we just put our minds to it, we're going to be able to come up with a lot of different a lot of different solutions that are all going to work together in synergy. And I just wanted to also clarify there, I'm not an expert on Japan. I think I just saw that probably once or twice and I probably just remembered that. Yeah, they same burn plastic sometimes, yeah. <laughs> what else do you think that people would benefit from knowing about recycling? I can give you a couple more uh, recycling tips that are pretty easy for people to do. One is batteries. And so when the battery in your watch or your bathroom scale or whatever it is goes flat, you keep that in your little battery container under your cupboard. And when you go to your 
local office works type store, you can drop your batteries off there for recycling or at several other points around. If you just do a quick little Google search, uh, lots of companies will take your batteries back. So there's, there's one, not to put your batteries in the landfill anymore, which is quite a toxic item. Mm-hmm. Two would be, remember how we talked about the little pieces of aluminum foil and how we collect them? If you take an old milk container or juice container, put all of your little tiny pieces of plastic, say such as bread tags and right those types of little things, and put them inside that milk container, screw the top back on, and then put that in your yellow recycling bin. The employee at the, uh, at the recycling point can pull that off the conveyor as well. Mm. Otherwise, they don't get recycled. Yeah. I mean, we're putting them in the recycling bin. That's what we want to happen. We want it to be recycled. Yeah, but if they're too small, they, they just can't be collected and, and, and easily separated from the recycling stream and they end up in landfill. Thanks, Gary. Is there anything else that you want to tell the listeners about, mate? One of the concepts that I quite like, Dan, which I would like to see our, our governments help us and industries work towards is a term called stewardship. So when a company, for example, produces a television that that company still owns the television when it's done and they're responsible for its care when it no longer works. And so that way that television is designed in such a way that it can be recycled, that it can be separated into recyclable components and dealt with appropriately instead of ending up in the general landfill. And there is some inroads into that, but there's a long way to go. Mm. That's a great word, stewardship. It's like taking ownership of your effects and your responsibilities rather than just being a a passenger or something like that, that, oh, well, it's not me who's going to have to deal with the consequences of this. No, we're taking stewardship. That's it. And can I ask you a quick question, Dan? Of course. If your TV stops working tomorrow, what would you do with it? Well, I've seen, I'm in a new area of Melbourne now. I've moved house. I don't know the nearest tip to me that would take it but i do know that there are tips out there that you can take it to and i'm guessing that they sort of strip it down and recycle the different parts that's that's a good answer if you did a quick google search of electronic waste in your area there would be points however almost all local bunnings um your hardware store has a small skip bin located right in front of the store that will take all of your electronic items for free well, there you go. I know that there is a Bunnings. Well, I'm pretty much smack bang in the middle of where there aren't Bunningses, but there's probably a closer Bunnings to me uh, than there is to a tip. Yep. Gary, thanks so much for coming on, mate. I think that this episode should really be listened to by a lot of people who maybe aren't thinking this way yet. Like this is the new way that we need to be thinking about recycling and stuff like that. It's not really good enough to just be throwing away smaller pieces of aluminium and throwing plant waste into the bin yeah or filling our bins with soft plastics when there is a an easy way to recycle them exactly thank you so much gary my pleasure dan thanks for having me as always i hope you enjoyed that episode from the plants grow here podcast by daniel fuller featuring gary moran If you'd like to keep entering a hidden world of horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts, follow Plants Grow Here on Spotify, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from.
Daniel's also set up a Plants Grow Here Twitter and Facebook page, and you should definitely follow Gary, who's also an arborist, on Twitter. His account is at ArborSmarty. Next week, I'm bringing you another Fast Flora Facts episode. The best bite-sized bits of research, stories, and trending topics about plants. We'll take a trip to the Netherlands and look at tulips and how the country's obsession with them supposedly drove their value to extremes in the 1600s. In the meantime, don't forget to follow Branch Out and join our community on Reddit. Just search for Branch Out Podcast, all lowercase and one word. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the new season and whether there's any particular topics you'd like to hear more of. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and I produce this episode of Branch Out.